Hi, this is Eugene with Ask Matt. Today we have a special episode where I was a guest on the Science is Cool Unplugged podcast with Dave Backer from Pocket Lab. Dave is a great host, and his super friendly personality makes for a fun conversation about education, science thinking, and of course, burritos. Here's the interview, and I hope you enjoy it. And what our research found was that empathy is a key ingredient to that deep engagement that, that, um, that we're seeking with students. And it's hard to get the empathy in the classroom. It's possible, but it's harder. But going outside into nature, into the forest, or even into a local park, um, observing nature and how it works is, is pretty exciting. This is Science is Cool Unplugged. I'm your host, Dave Baker, and today we're talking to Dr. Eugene Cordero from Green Ninja. Science is Cool Unplugged is a production of The Pocket Lab, makers of innovative science classroom technology and the hosts of the Science is Cool virtual unconferences. So Eugene, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are yourself, Dave? I'm doing great. So I have a question for you. So where did you come up with the name Green Ninja? Well, actually, I didn't come up with the name. So I, um, but I worked with some very creative people at San Jose State. And uh, so one of my colleagues in the film school uh, and, some, and some other colleagues in animation, we all got together and we wanted to tell stories about climate change and solutions to climate change in a way that would be fun for young folks. So we had this meeting and we met at a coffee shop and, and chatting about ideas. Uh, and I had a little bit of funding to, to do some work in that space. And then uh, a couple of weeks later, I get a, a call from, from one of the guys. He goes, what about Green Ninja? And I said, <laughs> um, what are you talking about? He goes, Let's, he, goes, I, I, he goes, I wrote up a script about Green Ninja, a, a superhero who takes action on climate change. Have a look at it and let me know what you think. And I loved it. And that's, that's where the idea of that superhero character came um, through, through someone from the film school, Babak Serafan, <laughs> actually. I like that. It's San Jose State. San Jose State. So um, I'll, just, I'll just tell you a little bit of the pre-story, which, which I'm, I'm proud of, is that at the time, I was going to go to a, a regular production studio to help me make a film about solutions to climate change for youth. And I was inspired by... Um, I was inspired by Annie Leonard's Story of Stuff, and which was a very popular um, video online about where stuff comes from. And so I was walking across campus one day, and I, one of my colleagues, I was, I was telling him about this. He said, why are you going to go to an outside studio? San Jose State has amazing yeah. artists. And, yeah. and so he's the one who set up this, this coffee with me, someone from the film school, someone from animation. And that's where Green Ninja really was born. <laughs> I, I love it. By the way, you know, there's a San Jose uh, Film Fest, right? And I imagine San Jose State has a lot of entries or somehow involved in it. Yeah, the Cinequest Film Festival. Cinequest, that's right. Cinequest. Yeah. And um, so some of the people that I worked with in film and animation, they often submit their films and their student films to Cinequest. Um, we've never had a Green Ninja film at Cinequest, but we've had Green Ninja films at, at other film festivals. Um, <laughs> and then right now what we do in addition, we still make some films, but mainly we are 
um, helping teachers have their students make their own Green Ninja inspired films. And we've had hundreds of films created. And every year we have a Green Ninja film festival where students, uh, middle school primarily students, make films about environmental solutions. And we'll have to invite you, Dave, to next year's. I mean, it's, they're, they're really great films that they get would, to the finals. I would love to. And I've seen they're on your website, too. So, yeah, we'll put links and everything. But, yeah, you should. I've checked them out. They're really good. I was just looking at some from, from uh, just yesterday. I was looking at some. And I even kind of teared up a couple of uh, these <laughs> students are really, really thoughtful. Uh, and and made some really emotional and inspiring and funny and great films. And uh, I was one of the judges this year, and, and we had a real hard time selecting our top our top films. Um, but it's really um, for for our educators here using storytelling and filmmaking in a science classroom really works, especially as a culminating experience at the end of the school year. So this is a by the way this is turning into a theme. Um, I, you know, we, we just launched this podcast for Science is Cool, and uh, pretty much all the podcasts we have been talking about storytelling, and I, um, you should go listen to Meredith Halpern. I think we just released it. She's Tinker, Tinkercast, and her partner, um, well, an investor and board member in her company is Guy Raz and uh, Mindy, and they do this Wow in the World podcast. And what we're talking about is that, you know, for so so Green Ninja, you're middle school. So, yeah. um, but you know, K five, the the teachers are not scientists. Mm -hmm. Middle school, you might have some teachers with science backgrounds, but generally not. It might be thirty percent mm -hmm. with some kind of technical or science background. So you're really talking the vast majority of teachers have no science background. So what they are is science communicators. They're not scientists. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly what you're saying. You, you know, these stories are a great way to capture children's interest. And the topic is science. And there you go. Yeah. I mean, we, we were fortunate to get a, a large NSF grant to study this at San Jose State. And so we had a five years we were studying scientific storytelling in the classroom. And one thing we found really interesting in our, in our research kind of bore this out was that that you attract other types of students become leaders in your classroom when you switch from kind of a typical science classroom experience with labs um, and, and textbooks and all those things. And then you say, oh, we're going to do something a little different. We're going we're gonna to tell stories about science to whoever, whatever audience you're interested in. And sometimes students, we, we've documented that sometimes students who normally would like barely raise their head in science class because they were totally disconnected, became the leaders of, of, of like this film group that made, you know, like an award winning film. So it really is an opportunity to, to involve other types of students um, or to reach them in, in different in very different way um, because it starts to make sense to them. And, they're, and they're, now this has become relevant for them. So you're you're hitting on another hot button hot button is that we we tend to quickly disclude diverse students from science especially girls you know and that's another whole another topic but um so you can you're bringing in students who you normally wouldn't bring in and you're doing it in a very easy way for them to remember i bet they remember these yeah, kinds definitely. of lessons better so it's it's you know you're kind of hitting two key things at, at least and probably more we, uh, 
this, some of the research we did in classrooms where we had video and, um, and microphones at every st student table of groups. And our, one of our researchers focused just on a group of, of, uh, of middle school girls who were making a film. And through video and audio, we were able to kind of watch the process over multiple weeks. It was really interesting how different the, the girls, they were actually, they were very collaborative and they wanted their stories to have pieces of every, of every other um, student's story. Um, and it was, it was quite different um, how their stories evolved compared to the, there were tables of just boys. I mean, and there was mixed as well. But just like you said, um, you know, one of the things we found was that this was, and, and other research as well, is it's a great way to engage a much wider community in the science, science classroom. Um, and it really worked for this, for this in this one particular girls group. Um, their final film was, was great, but more importantly, we saw them, we saw them connecting with some of the science themes. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, you know, I wonder, I, so I'm hearing this and hearing this and hearing this. I'm, I, so I'm wondering, what do we do about it? I mean, you're, you're in a good position, um, with Green Ninja. And so we'll, we'll, we should talk a little bit, bit more about Green Ninja, but people should know what you teach at San Jose State is I think that that's kind of the foundation to this, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm in the meteorology and climate science department at San Jose State. Uh, and, you know, normally I was, I teach classes in, in physical meteorology and, and dynamics and, you know, kind of a hard science area. Um, but after a decade or more of, of being involved in education, I still teach some of those classes and I still teach general education classes to all, all types of students. But if you ask me what I'm teaching this semester, Dave, on Monday, our first class, um, I'll be teaching technical communication. And I, I love this class because it's supposed to be like, kind of supposed to be about writing and it is, but mm -hmm. for a scientist, we do much more than just write. We talk, we do podcasts, we do interviews. Um, and so I have a really broad approach about, um, about how important it is if you want to be a good scientist you have to become a good communicator. And even the NGSS standards, SEP number eight, obtain, evaluate, and communicate information. It's so right. critical. And right. one of my, when I had a postdoc at NASA, my boss told me this. He said, I'll always remember, he said, it's great that you're doing all this great research, but if you don't write a paper or go to a conference and tell anyone, it's a hobby. And NASA doesn't pay you to have a hobby. And, you know, like, so if you want to, if you want your science to have impact, you have to communicate it to people. And, and that's what I tell the students on day one as well. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's, there's all kinds of ways you could communicate too. You could communicate through a film or video. Um, you can write, you can, you know, you can do slides, you can do pictures, you can yeah. do storyboards. I mean, there's a lot of ways. Yeah. And, I, and in the Green Ninja, in our curriculum, and you'll see it in the film festival, we are not prescriptive at all about how students communicate their information. So mm -hmm. what we help them develop is a good story. And so we use a story spine once upon a time and you know that, that type of approach. But then we sit back and we say, hey, you wanna make a graphic novel or you want to use you know, some stick figures or you wanna do a claymation thing or video, you know, we'll show you about shot selection, but even that doesn't mean it's got to be film. It could be drawing. It could be, you know, like, so, um, and students come up with lots of different ways of, of sharing their stories using 
technologies and, 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 and lots of different ideas. So sure. the key pieces is understanding, is, is helping students realize that telling a good story or that good communication um, practices, you know, we have to think about those. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering, um, this is, so this is interesting, um, you know, because these themes keep coming up, the same themes, same themes, and we're just not good at making them happen. Uh, so I, I do want to get to like, like, what can we do about this? But it's, I wonder if, as a student, if you work on, let's say you do a, like a storyboard and a video about your, your project, I wonder if that helps you look at the, the types of communications you're being fed as well and look at those and say, ah, you know, I wouldn't have done it that way and I don't quite get it. Um, it kind of gives you a filter too of what you expect in terms of good science communication from, from the media, right? It, it, this is where we get a lot of our yeah. science confusion, I think. That's, that's definitely true. Um, yeah. One thing that I know is impactful because it impacted me and, I, and it impacts our students is when I show them about something called shot blocking, which is like mm -hmm. how you compose a particular image for your audience. And um, so, for example, at the beginning of, of a story, you might have a wide establishing shot, like, oh, I'm in you know, New York City or I'm on a beach. Yeah, right. And then, and then you're going to zero in and, and you're going to get to know your characters and you're going to use those over-the-shoulder shots that you see that you don't really think about, but then when you know that, that that's a, a process of allowing the camera to be or to see the person's eyes, which are a real kind of focal part, and, and then when you use a, a close-up or an extreme close-up, which many times teach, uh, students are, are, feel uncomfortable like putting a camera right in your face because we usually don't get that close. But when you, in, in one lecture, when we share that with students and give them the kind of power of some of that, um, the architecture of, of how you put together a story, then they see it and, and then we watch some films and say, oh, what did you notice? They're like, oh, over the shoulder or close up or, you know, it, at least from that sense, by studying it and then doing it yourself, I'm, I know you start to see it more in, well, in, when, you, when you're out there and looking at media. So when I, the one thing I learned about myself learning is something really sinks in when I have to explain it to somebody else. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only person who's no. like that. You know, I gotta, I gotta explain this to, you know, even, even like my daughters, okay, oh, they're taking first, you know, first year calculus, they go, okay, I gotta explain this. <laughs> That's yeah. when you really learn. <laughs> it is, and you know, every, Every teacher and every college professor will tell you, you know, oh, I really learned this subject, um, you know, when I had to teach it. In fact, my my PhD advisor told me it was kind of exciting. He goes, oh, I'm teaching this radiation class. I said, oh yeah, radiation, that's hard. He said, yeah, that's why I I I, I signed up to teach. I don't know anything about radiation, but I know that by the end of the semester, <laughs> he goes, I've always wanted to learn it. Well, I think the point is, you know, if the students spend a couple days making a video, you could pretty much guarantee that the, if it's like a phenomena they're talking about, they got it down. Yeah, and, and what we do... And they the, won't forget it, right? And they're, yeah. they're going to remember it for years. And to help our teachers uh, and students as well, what we do in the Green Ninja Film Festival, which is different than other film festivals, at least that I've seen, is that we have a digital portfolio that's required. And in the portfolio, we talk about the audience, we talk about the synopsis, but we also talk about key science moments and students have to argue from evidence about if they proposed a particular solution or whatever that phenomenon, they have to, they have to show 
not necessarily the audience, because the audience doesn't see this, but the judges and the teacher, they have to demonstrate that they understand, you know, the science. And, yeah. and I like to tell students, you know, that real filmmakers, real directors, if they're going to, you know, film something about, you know, Morocco, they actually go on site and often will live there for a month or two so that they can tell an authentic story. And so we want our students telling authentic science stories so they have to demonstrate to us that they understand the science so that they are true to their audience. And I think yeah. when we share that with students, they kind of get it like, yeah, I, I, they take some responsibility. Like it's, I'm, I'm responsible for telling the story. So I'm going to do some of that work and make sure I can, I, I'm, I'm true with the science. So I have a question on that and just for some context. So the way I describe to Green Ninja to, to people who I talk to is that it's middle school, NGSS aligned, curriculum through the lens of cl climate. Is yeah. that a fair? I think that's, I, I would, I would say it's through the lens of uh, environmental solutions. So environmental solutions. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, climate being the main one, but we talk about water, we talk about soil health, we talk about biodiversity. Um, because to, to kind of narrow it just to climate um, might, you know, because we're doing all sciences and it's for the, the full three grades. Um, our goal is, is to help students feel like, oh, they have some agency around solving local environmental problems. Uh, okay, I, that's fair. I, I will amend that. I, I like to say climate makes people's blood pressure go up a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you know, you want to keep no. people awake. So, uh, <laughs> so that's a good thing. Well, I, okay. So um, I think what's, I guess my question about that is, you know, I would imagine kids around middle school are really starting to care about this. And so it gives them something kind of a, a framework or a theme or um, something that they can get excited about and that, okay, I know why I'm studying this now. It's, this is the, the world I live in. Right. And nobody yeah. can, you can't miss the extreme temperatures. You can't, can't miss it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Know, so, you know, you're, it gives the kids something that, okay, I feel like I'm getting some agency here, maybe. Especially if they, I mean, our goal is the agency and, and, and our research, which, which we've been doing research on this for, for a while, is that if we just talk to students about the issue that um, typically isn't as empowering as if we talk about it and then follow it with um, practical application of solving some local problems that actually matter. So that piece is, is really important is like, not just to talk about solutions, but to give students the opportunity to do something in their own community um, and apply that science that they've been learning. So yeah, I, that's um, a, a critical piece to this. Uh, and you're right, middle school, high school students are kind of the leaders right now in mm -hmm. the climate movement internationally. Uh, and um, and it, it's, you know, we, we try not to, there's this balance between we don't want to depress um, students. And sometimes right. students will come back to their teachers and say, oh, it's getting too much. Like, yeah. and, and teachers will, you know, we, we encourage teachers to, to, you know, you're still a kid. This, this, this burden shouldn't be, you know, on you. You actually get that feedback from yeah. your... So, yeah. so we, we have some teachers who are really passionate about this. And they will they'll sometimes say, yeah, some, some students came up and said, oh, it's, it's, it's uh, I don't know if I'll be able to go to the protest. You know, like these are like the Friday, you know, every Friday, kids around the country and around the world, the first Friday of the month, they're doing some type of climate activism. Um, 
mm-hmm. in schools. But that's, you know, just like for all of us, you know, um, it's, it can be tough work. So we really focus on the hyper-local, like, oh, is there something you can do to improve the air quality in your community or the water in your community? And let's not worry too, too much about the state of the ocean at this moment. And let's see if we can do something in our school grounds or in our home or in our classroom. Well, we, we've, I mean, we've learned that in spades with Pocket Lab is that there's what lights people up is local projects. You know, yeah. we, we do this urban heat island thing, which is really, you know, we've t- you and I have talked about this and mm-hmm. it's really aligned with what you do. Um, and what's great about it is that you're going to go measure your school yeah. and your local, you know, your, your local could be around your home, could be around your neighborhood, could be around your school. And that's, it gives you more meaning, right? It totally does. And, you know, just, I'll just tell you, Dave, I, I'm like, someone was saying, oh, you got to write your new bio for the San Jose State. And so I used to be like, you know, climate modeling, blah, blah, blah. And then someone said, oh, no, you're really an educator. But what I'm actually really interested in is solutions to climate change. And, um, and so I pay attention. I read a lot of stuff on that. And what I've been reading recently um, is about, uh, like, how do we keep the area around us cooler? And mm-hmm. one of these um, bike planners was telling me, oh, we're building these bike lanes where the, the, protected, the piece that protects the bike from the car is like a bunch of trees because we're trying to reduce the temperature on the ground near the asphalt where the people are walking. And so what a great application of this urban heat island stuff that you guys are doing with Pocket Labs is like, mm-hmm. let's do that at school sites. Like one of, our, one of our customers wants to change what the school sites look like. They want to plant more trees because they have, you know, the high cooling bills in the summer. And they said every year it's just like it's getting worse and it's uncomfortable. We, we had a teacher, uh, people listening to this podcast will hear this like three times now. We had a teacher in Georgia whose students went out and they, they just built a uh, you know, sports stadium that was sunken and it had AstroTurf and it was the hottest thing on the, state, on the campus, oh on the school gosh. campus. Right. It was just a bad design. Yeah. And the kids figured that out. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, so that's, I mean, I think when kids get involved in that, that's exciting. Like, especially if in, if in a couple of years they start to see trees planted in the areas where they had measured before, and then they go measure the temperature difference. And you know my colleague, Matt Delasio, yeah. um, he, he sent me some data from, from Cal State Northridge. He said, here's the temperature, like sitting out on the, on the pavement, it's like 112 degrees. And then here there's a little redwood grove, like 30, 30 yards away. And he goes, this is where we had class and it was like 82. And, right. you know, he was like, that's why we have, that's why we like having this little redwood grove here. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it smelled better. Well, you know, so I think for the teachers who are struggling with the depression of, you know, the climate data that we're seeing, there are solutions, you know, so yeah. focus on the solutions. That's the, these kids are in middle school now are going to have to be the engineers who engineer our, our way yeah, out. Of this. Definitely. I, I'll say that um, I'm super happy about the climate bill, Dave. Like, yeah, we, we have been working. We as a community, people all across the world and especially in this country have been working to try to get something through Congress for a couple decades. And we've had a, almost nothing. And, and it's also, it's not just Democrats, but Democrats and Republicans. There have been a few bipartisan efforts that have failed. And 
uh, this was just like a great telenovela, Dave. Like, you know, like <laughs> we thought, oh yeah, you know, Biden came in, we're going to get something, and then no, and then yes, and then no, and then we we're like, oh, maybe we'll get it, and then Manchin's like, no. And then we were really depressed. And this is what happens in movies, right? You go through this roller coaster of yes, no, the hero's going to get, no, he's not. Yes, he is, no, he's not. And this played out like, and then at the end, like, oh, he's agreed. We're going to actually get it I know, through. Yeah, it was, a, it was kind of, nobody expected it to work. Yeah, I guess that, I don't know, maybe they wanted expectations to be low, but so, <laughs> so, they, could, but, so they could exceed but, them. But, but this, this really is going to change, like, like quite a few things in this country. And what do you like in it? What do you what do you think is the most exciting bit? Um, I mean, we're going to be continuing to to push to push, um, you know, renewables, and and you know, even though there were some provisions in there for more natural gas, more pipelines, what we expect probably will happen is that the renewables price will just continue to go down, and who's going to want a new um, gas fired power plant when the economics don't make sense. It's already happening. Mm -hmm. It's just going to further that. Um, so yeah. that's that's exciting. Um, there's there's electric vehicle. Um, yeah, well, I, I would say my most the favorite provision is four thousand dollar rebate for a used electric vehicle. Oh, that's a good idea. I didn't oh, no. know that was in there. No, that's my second favorite. My first favorite is oh that the rebates for electric vehicles are only on cars where the batteries are manufactured in the United States. Which today, See, which glad. today is almost none of them. Probably none, right? Yeah. But the goal is to bring back some of that manufacturing, and for potentially for jobs, and you know, and okay, maybe there's you know maybe there's some economics challenges in there, but I, I think at least the intention that you know can we can we do this at home and can we you know can we do this all around the country, so that mm -hmm. it's not just wealthy people who are benefiting from you know EV rebates or something like that. Right. Um, right. You know that. Those are provisions, um, and then the home. You know, we're we're gonna slowly decarbonize the home. That means less natural gas, more electricity, um, heat pumps, induction stoves. Uh, it's just it's part of this little recipe. I, I talk about it in all my talks. It's the three-step plan, Dave. Is you reduce energy demand, you electrify everything, and you get your electricity from renewables. And if you do that at scale. We can live just a, it's just as good a life as we are now, um, with like a tenth of fossil fuel burning. You know, it's interesting. We just had um, uh, biomimicry Beth Ratner. She's oh, yeah. so much fun to listen to, and you know, she said an interesting um, fact. So all the natural structures that she talks about, the you know, natural engineering that birds and bees and all, all kinds of plants and do, they do it without using any any creating any waste <laughs> yeah, any I know. <laughs> it's kind of interesting <laughs> it's great yeah i mean so you know like um we we have this in school program but we're starting to do much more um and trying to to encourage and support school districts to bring their students outside more and more because mm -hmm. the more they go out and and see what's going on out there in, in nature the more exciting and the more you appreciate. And, and what our research found was that empathy is a key ingredient to that deep engagement that, that, um, that we're seeking with students. And it's hard to get the empathy in the classroom. It's possible, but it's harder. But going outside into nature, into forest, or even into a local park, um, observing nature and how it works, is is pretty exciting and uh, we just need to give all students those opportunities 
Since I've been talking to a lot of podcast guests about science communication, kind of a thought, I was thinking about this, you know, like you think late at night or in the middle of the night or whatever. The scenes I remember from my education are all pretty much outdoors or doing something hands-on or some active. I don't, you know, I don't remember one single lecture. <laughs> that was riveting. <laughs> I do remember going out, you know, and, and collecting rocks or, you know, looking at leaves and, and you know, trying to understand um, trees and photosynthesis. I, that's the stuff you remember. Throwing a ball and, you know, talking about trajectory. And um, I remember that stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I'll be honest with you, I, I had a, a more traditional type of, of science education. And, and luckily, you know, my dad was interested in physics and quantum theory and stuff like that. And that's why I got interested in science, because the science classroom was just some formulas that I had to like piece together. Me and my buddy would just take all the formulas and think, okay, I wonder which ones are going to work because we were totally devoid of like the physical world. This was just like plug and chug. And um, so, yeah, I, I mean, that's what I, rem I largely what I remember too is memorizing all the formulas, you know, and you know, if you were lucky, you could write them on an index card. <laughs> and then the, it was just matching which formula to which problem. I know, you know. Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, I think that our, what, what we want to try to do is obviously is make that science experience much richer, much richer, much more relevant to students' lives. And, and I often, when we do personal, when we do professional training, I'll, I tell the teachers, if, if your students know why they're doing this, if, if you could invite a principal and say, you come into my class any day and ask any student, why are you doing this? And if they could say, oh, because we're, this unit is about, you know, water conservation, or this unit's about species, you know, and that's why I'm learning this particular thing, that would be great, because um, we're, we're basically telling us how students are then involved in that story. Well, well let's talk about how, did, how do you get this across? Because there, you know, you and I kind of agree on some of the, a lot of the issues here, right? And a lot of the what works and what doesn't work. The next question is, okay, how do we make this stuff happen? And where the rubber meets the road is in the classroom. And, and you have to train the teacher to know how to do this, to want to do this, to be motivated to do this. And it probably changed what they're doing today. So how, how, do, you, how do you peel that onion? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And after we spent five years developing this, this curriculum, Green Ninja, uh, I remember talking to one of our state teacher, one of our state education leaders, and I was telling her all about it. And she's like, you know, that's great. She said, but you know, great teachers <laughs> could teach with anything. And, yeah. and, and what our teachers, what we really need in education is, is good training. And so she mm -hmm. said, you can spend your next five or 10 years thinking about how to, how to train, teach, how to engage with teachers. And so we, we are, we have been spending a lot of time thinking about that. One, one step is that, that good um, helping teachers see themselves as not necessarily the, the 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 knowledge font of the classroom, but as a participant, as a chief explorer, as we call them, we're going to go explore some phenomena. We're going to go learn some things together, and we don't know the answers. Isn't that exciting? Um, helping the teachers realize that, and NGSS is is you know that's what they want. That's what the the, the intention of the standards were. Um, but that isn't always what comes out of you know, what, what teachers, um, especially if they don't have a science background, they, they may not have had 
you know, that tr uh, sufficient training. So training is, is, is really important, and, and one day a year is probably not going to do it. So um, encouraging districts and maybe philanthropy and, you know, other sources to keep mm -hmm. supporting teachers through training, high-quality training. Um, and, and you mentioned a really important thing, which is want to do it. Right, and feel right. like, oh, I, I, there's something more to learn, like in their teaching practice. And, um, and so for teachers who are in that mindset, like, oh, I want to learn more, like the teachers who are listening to this podcast, right? Yeah, it's kind of self-selecting. Like if you're listening, you probably want to, you're, you're listening because you want to learn something. <laughs> yeah, because you like learning things. Right. You know, right. we all have things that like all of us have a little bit of something we can share with, with the world. So, um, but from then from the perspective of the other teachers, that's where kind of district-wide or school-wide trainings um, allow you the opportunity to, to potentially con connect with and give that opportunity to other people too. Um, so when well, I'm wondering, well, I just, I, so I know you guys do professional learning or professional development at, um, for your curriculum, but is there any, do you have any resources or things that you could point to for just the, the teacher who wants to be, get more motivated and learn some of these, you know, read a little bit more or see a little more, some of these ideas we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, uh, there are great resources out there. Um, you know, I kind of think of it from from like, you know, three perspectives. One perspective meaning that, okay, you're motivated, and so then you're gonna, you know, then you're gonna go onto this like, okay, I want to, I want to learn more, um, and you know, we could share with you, and maybe we'll leave it in the notes. You know, some some resources for, you know how to be effective in terms of some of this NGSS ideas. My colleague Matt Delasio mm -hmm. has a whole series of videos on YouTube, which are yeah. really, really great um, to help the teacher think about how to use the cross-cutting concepts and the science and engineering practices to invoke that curiosity um, and to help your students really become, you know, a good science thinkers. Um, so I, I think the resources are out there, but you asked the question earlier, how do we do this when the rubber makes the road? How do we do this? Yeah. yeah. That's where I think, um, you know, these, these, these leaders that are here with amongst us, um, if they can seek more leadership positions within, within schools and within districts. Um, and then, you know, our approach at Green Ninja, which we've been finding, you know, to be quite helpful is, is that if, if a school district invests in our curriculum for eight or 10 years, then, then they often listen to us about training. And uh, yeah. and we can advocate for, you know, the substitute for for the district to pay the money for the substitutes so they can be come out of school because if it's just after school and on Saturdays, again that self selects the the teachers right. who have the time and right. ability to do that. But right. we want to get to all teachers. We want to and give them the time and space and and um, to be able to think about their teaching practice. Well, to be fair, I mean, you know, it. it you know, teachers are getting beat up left and right these days, right? So, <laughs> you know, we don't want to pile on for sure because it's a, it's a really hard job, and the scope of the job in the last two years has expanded been, tremendously, yeah. right? It's a, it's a different job today than it was two years ago. Um, Absolutely. So, you know, to be fair, teachers are busy, they are right? Busy. And they have a lot of demands, and they have certain ways they're getting measured, which may not be consistent with what you and I are talking about. Yeah. So there's a there's this whole host of issues with just 
doing this in the first place, right? I, I agree. And when there's a shortage of teachers right now, right? Yeah, and this we I mean we struggle with this because you know district says yes we want to do this training, um, but we're having trouble getting all the substitutes because our preferred. We hear that all the time yeah. with science in school. It's like, uh, can you pick a different day? <laughs> we have no subs. And yeah. you, right. And, and it's not like one or two. This yeah. is like five or ten percent. So, so the other get. thing that we're um, uh, we're actually piloting a new um, climate education training in the corporate space. But um, so, for example, and what does that mean in the corporate? So you're so imagine you work for Starbucks or something like that, and um, and Starbucks has some some sustainability goals. Um, wouldn't it be great if your employees knew more about sustainability? and applied it not only to their own life, but to their working, to what's going on in the workplace. So we're developing a training program um, that takes um, employees, knowledge workers, through that experience, very similar to what we did in our research. Um, because the, the, what, we, what our research found is that we can help, we, some, some educational experiences can help people care more and feel more empowered. And, and that provides that additional motivation. Um, but the reason I'm mentioning that is that it's going to be a mixture of in-person and, and remote. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, another way to go back into K-12 is to, is to again, have some hybrid professional training um, um, uh, systems that uh, provide some kind of certificate or some kind of reward or some kind of incentive for completion over, over time, but, are, but have the flexibility you know, uh, there are teachers who are like, gosh, you know, it's a lot of work to put together the materials for the substitute. Maybe I'd rather just, I'll just teach it. Um, but, mm. they, but to give them the opportunity to still be involved, you know, if you could use some hybrid instructional methods um, and if you could make it more flexible so it doesn't have to be just at this time, you can complete this kind of like Udemy or, you know, or some of these other systems. Um, that, could that could provide an alternate method for teachers to continue to develop their practice, but in their own time and space, but still be rewarded financially or through some some other method. Um, right. And so I think that's we, we need to do that. Because, uh, like you said, the last couple of years have been really, really tough on teachers. And we have to do everything we can to support them in making the learning experience more flexible and adaptable to their schedules and what's going on with them is is important. So so for sure, for people listening, we'll get all these links. We create a landing page for every podcast. We put as many links that we can that we've talked about. And and um, so you'll be able to people will be able to research that info. I like the corporate training. You know, I was while you're describing that. I'm almost thinking, you know, who needs it? The, the, the district administration needs that. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I, I agree, and you know, not just the science teacher, you know, the overall district administration. A, a, um, you know, some some very well respected training groups have uh, training for teachers and training for administrators, and uh, I think that's a great idea. You know, that's um, we 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 all need to learn. We all have something to learn. You know, and 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 at San Jose State, where 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 I have to like every. Every few weeks, I get a nice email from the university that says, oh, you've been signed up for this training class. You have 11 days to finish that. Otherwise, we won't send you a check or something like that. And, you know, even though I'm initially grumpy about it, um, some of the training we've got is excellent. Yeah, it's those things, it's hard to start. But when you're done, you're glad you did it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, that, that I, I, I think that's, that's how we can, you know, help um, other folks have the time and space to do those kind of trainings. One of the things I did want to talk about is, you know, 
why it may sound like it's obvious why this is important, but you actually wrote a paper on this that I've shared with, I, I must have shared with a thousand people by now. But the, the point of the paper was that you did a longitudinal study of students who had exposure to uh, general climate science or environmental science and those who didn't and the ones who did, what happened? Well, the ones, well, I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the, not the longer, longer story, but if, if you, um, if students who take a climate change class and if it's a generic climate change class, this is what we first discovered, and then you survey them at the end and you compare to other students, okay, there's some things that are a little different, but if it's about motivation, about solving climate issues, wasn't that different. Mm. And, and that shocked me because I had been teaching that way for many years. So we had to then go read the literature and, and, and do some of, some of our research to design a better class. And so our paper was actually describing like this special class that we designed. Um, and we, we had some, some particular you know, um, actions in that class that we thought we found that were to be very important. And if you design, let's say, a high quality climate change education course, not like the course I was teaching 20 years ago, um, that uh, even many years later, the, their carbon footprint of those adults is about three tons of carbon or 20% less than the average person, the average Californian. See, th that's fascinating. So what's, what's and so th that's an amazing point, right? You know, that just, there's the why you're doing it. And, you know, for a teacher, if you want to get some motivation, there's a great why. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe it's a long game, but, you, you know, you're, you can have an impact you know a teacher might have 90 100 150 students a year and yeah and over 10 years that's a lot of students you're gonna and, have a lower and dave i don't want it to be a long game yeah actually i'm thinking you know really so we've done some studies on the short term that year and because because in, in green ninja and some other curriculums too we ha we use the home as a living laboratory students homes so they start changing their energy use at home and we actually can track it the data and see that oh wow we got a 10 percent reduction in energy use in the home after the students were interrogating energy use and and seeing oh can we reduce it for a week or two and some of those things they start to do become habit or the family's like oh yeah we can do this or we save money or whatever so um uh, our goal is to is to obviously empower students with with becoming by becoming great science uh, thinkers and developing some some interest in, in the environment. Um, but we actually believe that that that, that can happen. Um, we can actually see the environmental benefit um, within a couple of years. So when um, my older daughters, when they were little, we, we got a box and we put it by the mail and we took a month's worth of mail and we put it in the box. And I have the data somewhere, I could pull it up and we weighed it and it was, it was like six or eight kilograms of mail wow. in a month. It was, you know, big thick uh -huh. catalogs and just unsolicited stuff and a right. hundred flyers. Um, so we did a calculation. We live in San Jose, so we counted the number of households. And our our calculation was something like the San Jose the the, the U.S. mail in San Jose delivers two hundred eighty elephants in in paper <laughs> a, day, a day. Oh my gosh, a day, right? <laughs> But, you know, the thing that was funny is like, okay, let's, we don't need these catalogs. Let's make sure we're not getting it, right? So you're right. You can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, uh, 
I, I, that's super fun because it's it's, it's, fun. it's so relevant to your you it's know. Fun. And then if you could reduce it, I, I uh, somehow. I think the phone book came that month, so that oh, like okay, added that, that, a that, kilogram. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it was still a lot. It was a lot of stuff. It was you know put. Put a cardboard box by your mail for a month and throw all the junk mail in it. You'll be surprised in one month. You'll have five kilos easy. Do you ever get do you ever get a U line catalog? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean it's it's true. So those are um that's a great learning experience for 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 your for Well, your I like your point. I was thinking, you know, um, this paper, by the way, we'll make sure we link it. Everybody, should, by the way, I've shared this so many times. You owe me a dollar per citation. <laughs> <laughs> but, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give it to you in burrito units, Dave. Okay, <laughs> and we'll get there in a second. But um, yeah, so I, you know, we'll put a link to this. I, and you know, I always thought it was a, a more of a long, long-term thing. But you're right. You know, you can modify somebody's behavior in a few weeks. I bet. That's where all this this type of this line of research started on the short term, and the goal was. I remember the study. It was the the funding was in the city of San Jose, and they said, "Oh, um, we want you to design some kind of environmental program, and we want you to demonstrate the impact, and in some physical quantity, some like you know." And so I was like, "Gosh, how are we going to do this?" And then I thought, "Oh, maybe we can get them to to do something at home with energy, and we can actually have the data and track it." And that's how mm. we saw that we could, we, you know, that students could be part of a 10% reduction in home energy use. And that in some cases that continued, like some of those, those changes in behavior. Um, and the students loved seeing the data because it was, you know, we get it from PG&E, it was their own data, uh, and they became more data literate. And uh, so, the, so that's where that kind of started. And so um, we did another one with... Um, you're going to laugh at this, but uh, we students were, um, these are college students at this point, but they had a phone application and they could monitor the driving of a car, their their own car, or it could potentially be your family's car. Hard accelerations, hard brakes, and, yeah. and, and um, time over speed limit. And it calculated the excess carbon because of your of your driving behavior. Um, so those were some, some technologies we have been exploring. Um, uh, to produce some kind of like, you know, like your watch thing that, that kind of measures your environmental impact. So you can start to quantify these things. And then, you know, we even have a company who said to us, if you can get students to, to improve their environmental, you know, um, outcomes, and you can demonstrate that with numbers, we'll give the students prizes. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll donate stuff to their school or whatever, you know, like kind of like there's some energy things that do that. So... Um, yeah, that's really interesting kind of, um, you know, explorations and, and some research that's going on. I love the excess energy. You know, it's funny. I just had this debate with my eldest daughter. You know, she's she's um, uh, probably uh, an older millennial. Um, you know, she door dashes everything and, you know, Amazon and everything and, you know, Uber Eats. And, you know, I said, do you realize how many cars you've just dispatched? <laughs> How many vehicles you just dispatched in, you know, around your home? Yeah, it's, right. You know, we it's it's, you know, she should. Well, I don't know. I we we're I was teasing her. She was teasing me about stuff that I do. That's wasteful too. So it goes both ways. But you know, it, it's a good discussion. It's like totally, is that, it's do a you totally need... good discussion. Those, yeah, that's you know, like, um, you know, we're going for a state adoption in in Texas, 
And, uh, and someone said, you know, they're not going to be so friendly to an organization that, that talks about climate. But, um, but the real discussion is like, well, what do we do to solve some of these challenges we have about air pollution, water pollution? And there's mm -hmm. these, all these trade-offs that you're just mentioning. Uh, and even one of my colleagues just yesterday was saying, oh, you know, for our training, we like to bring coffee, but sometimes teachers don't drink it all. Should we use a Keurig or, a, or an espresso? But then we have the waste. And, you know, there's these, and, and what we want to do is create great science or good science thinkers so we can, you know, assess like and think about it from different perspectives. So my thing I've been thinking about recently is that there's a little grocery store downtown in Mountain View where I live. And he was telling me, you know, I'm really, I'm not online. I don't have, you know, like these grocery delivery things. Or I'm not part of that. And he's losing business. And, and so mm -hmm. if you wanted to appeal to your, to your daughter, there's another element to sustainability. We think, about, we think about environment, we think about people, and we think about profit. And so is, is DoorDash a good thing for the worker? You know, like, is it like there's some good things and there's some bad and so helping students think about um, some of our actions from multiple perspectives, it makes it more complicated. Um, you're going to buy a fair trade coffee or not, you know, those things. Yeah. But, um, but that's ultimately our role in education is to, is to help people think about these complex things well, um, so they can make the best decisions. Every student is not going to take science in a career in college, right, for sure. Right. And it's a small percentage, uh, maybe 10 or 15%, I think, right, in that range. And But you want them all to be able to think critically about yeah. some of these fairly simple things. You know, this is, I think, is why we, we've been so successful with the Urban Heat project is it's pretty simple. And, you know, in your mind, everybody kind of understands your example. I, I want to sit under the trees. I don't want to sit on the asphalt. Yeah. Right. Uh, but now you can measure it and you can put some numbers on it and you can share that data and so on. So it's it is, you know, even if you're not going to be a science major, you'll understand that. And it's it's fairly straightforward. Well, I have a um, <laughs> we have to get the, you know, this is coming. So, OK, so how many what is what, how much energy is in a burrito and how does that compare to driving a car? Like, could you is there a number of burritos per mile for a car, a gas car versus an electric car. <laughs> yeah, I, I what's your latest? Like so that. by the way, people don't know, you're known as Dr. Burrito because you love burritos. And you're the go to guy for like, what's the best burrito in San Jose? <laughs> yeah. And and there was a I'm, I'm trying to I, I was not prepared for that question, Dave, with no. the actual numbers. <laughs> but I, I, I have created different graphs of looking at, you know, the carbon footprint of a burrito versus driving and there you go. how far can how far can you go on a oh, here's one. How far can you go on a burrito's worth of energy on a bicycle versus a car? What's and do you have those so numbers? You, in the, yeah, I could kind of give you the ballpark. Like, like the order of magnitude. I'm curious. Yeah. So, you know, a burrito is. 800 calories, let's say. And so you can go, let's say, 30 miles on a bicycle, you know, on, on 800 calories. Yeah, sounds right. And, um, and in a car, you maybe go like a tenth of a mile or something like that, you know, like on that, on the, those joules of, of energy. Um, and that's interesting. It just, and that is showing you the difference in terms of efficiency of moving around. It means that moving around on a bicycle is really efficient compared a, to. That's a vast difference. That's not, yeah, not no small difference. Yeah, compared to moving a four thousand pound vehicle around. Yeah. Um, with a com internal combustion engine. Yeah. Um, which isn't very efficient. Now, electric vehicle is going to be much more efficient. Mm -hmm. um, 
But from a climate standpoint, you know, like the thing I like to talk about is, well, what's your carbon footprint per mile driving mm. a car versus riding a bicycle? And my students will say, driving, riding a bicycle, your carbon footprint is zero. You know, you're, you're not emitting anything. And I remind them, oh, but your food required energy to make and manu- and it's got a carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, uh, so then the, then the story becomes, oh, what are you eating in your burrito? Yeah. So if you, <laughs> here's, here's the, uh, the end of that story is if you, if you eat a vegetarian burrito and you ride your bike, your carbon footprint's really low. But if you ate a beef burrito and you ride your bike, that it's similar to an electric vehicle. Oh, geez, it's that much more. I, yeah. I've heard it's like 10x, the, the carbon footprint of calories of, of meat yeah. versus vegetables. Yeah. Is that... it can, and it could be even be even be more than 10. Yeah. So beef and lamb are, are, are pretty high. And that's mainly because of the methane and the, mm-hmm. and the deforestation associated with, with growing those fruits. Uh, it's, it's, it's a little complicated, I'll just say, Dave, because there's different scenarios and all this stuff. But it's super fascinating. I love thinking about that. And um, at the upcoming um, case conference, we might have a little get together. I think I mentioned to you that we, we might invite some people to come build their own burrito or taco. Yeah. And we're going to have the little carbon footprint numbers next to all the different ingredients just to help share that. But even that, you know, it's if you're on one farm versus the other, one country versus the other, it could be quite different. When I went, I guess, so you know the carbon footprint of a burrito, but then you can think of the you know, nobody just has the ingredients at home to make a burrito. Maybe you do. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> so yeah. what a lot of people do is they'll they'll DoorDash it. Right? Yeah. So what's the carbon footprint of a, a you know DoorDash burrito where somebody's got to drive 20 minutes to go get it, 20 minutes to your house at least? Yeah. So it's pretty high. Know, every, mi- every, every mile of driving, let's just say it's a pound of carbon emissions. That's mm-hmm. the kind of ballpark number. So um, if someone has to drive 20 miles back and forth, that's 20 more pounds. You're, the typical carbon footprint of a burrito is on the order of five pounds so or less. So most of the carbon footprint is, is someone driving around. Yeah. Now, DoorDash, they might, maybe they join trips or something, or I don't know. Um, but... Uh, you know, I agree. It's you know. So my suggestion would be, go to the Mexican market, buy the big flour tortillas, so you can make your own, bring your great ingredients, and then even if you're using you know some meat products, you know it's much less than than doing the DoorDash from from the Chipotle. Yeah, yeah. What? <laughs> it's really interesting. I love the I love the footprint covering footprint of a burrito. This is a really good talking about. It's like the weight. It's the weight of the elephant. Yeah, the amount of meal that weighs one elephant. Yeah, so <laughs> it, yeah, I, I do end up talking about burritos with students, and and sharing some of those numbers, and and uh, I think it's fun, um, and I I do like burritos. Best. Uh, my wife would my wife would say he likes them a lot. <laughs> I love burritos. Who doesn't love burritos? Well, my best best burrito place. Let's end with that. Uh, okay. Top three. Yeah. No, we'll do, I could just give you the number one. So I, I am a La Victoria guy. Yeah. So um, there was a great article in the Mercury News and the San Francisco Chronicle in the last six months. Um, people can Google La Victoria uh, San Jose, and you'll read about the owners. And, and I'll be honest with you, their burritos are good. 
It's um, the sauce. <laughs> it's the sauce. This sauce is crazy. And, uh, and it's only three people in the world know how to make it, the owner and two sons. And he comes from the grandma in Mexico, and they've been making it 20 plus years. And people try to buy it, and they won't sell the, the mm. recipe. And it's vegan. Uh, oh. And they seem to know what that means because yeah. I've we've pressed them on that. Mm -hmm. Are you really mean? You know, like there's no chorizo grease in there because it sure looks like there is. But um, uh, it's a great story, and the sauce is great. And so for folks who get the chance to come to San Jose or the Bay, South Bay, um, go to La Victoria. Order if you're gonna if you're gonna listen to Doctor Burrito, order the <laughs> breakfast burrito. Potato mm. and eggs, rice and beans. It's no salsa. They don't put any salsa on the burrito. You don't want them to. Don't let them put a pico de gallo in there. It'll mess up the whole thing. And then you get the orange, get the orange sauce, sauce. And, and the green sauce. You deliver how much salsa you want every single bite, and you're happy. Yeah, you they should, are very, very happy. They should just sell salsa. <laughs> they do. Well, I you mean, can, you can buy a bottle for six dollars. Yeah, you can buy a bottle there, but I mean, it should be like some kind of. I don't know. <laughs> Apparently, in the in the article in the Mercury News, there's someone came from Washington, asked all their friends, and you know, bought like sixty bottles or something, and <laughs> took them back with them. So, uh, yeah, that's that's fun. Anyhow, it's a nice place. I've been going there since I started at San Jose State, so for over twenty years. Yeah, and the burritos have been consistently wonderful. In fact. Dave, you got me thinking about it right now. <laughs> Getting hungry, yeah, me too. Well, I, you know, um, let's we need we're due for a burrito. You know, well, I think we are. Yeah, just definitely. We'll, let's let's go for a burrito. <laughs> okay, that'll be fun. So, so, Eugene, where do you want people to find you? Green Ninja, of course, right? Yeah, GreenNinja.org, mm -hmm. and um, if someone wants to check out like our curriculum, we have guest access, and we're. You know, we're, we're not like, you know, McGraw-Hill or we're not a big, super big company. We're medium size. Um, but we love talking to teachers and, and folks who, you know, so we, we are very kind of like customer oriented and, and people have questions. They want to talk about things. Um, and we have a great product that, um, that teachers are really enjoying. Well, I, I will say, you know, everything we've, you know, from teachers, they love your content, even we hear from everybody. It's like, oh, Green Edge is really, really good stuff. So it and is it is really good. We're very familiar with that Pocket Lab. It is very, very good. Yeah. And, and you know, we love having, a, you know, Pocket Labs is an important piece yeah. to, to Green Ninja because it's, you know, we want students studying the world around them. And uh, as I always say, and maybe this came from you, Dave, or, or Clifton, I don't know, but it allows students to see the unseen. Yeah. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like they can they can see parts of the world that they don't normally get to see and then attach numbers to it and and then use that to to make the world a better place. And, and we love that. I, I think that's fantastic. That's what we want students doing. And it's that's fantastic. Eugene, it is so good to talk. To you. It's always great to talk to you. And uh, we're due, overdue for a burrito. So we'll leave it there. And thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat today. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's always fun. Science is Cool Unplugged is a production of The Pocket Lab, makers of innovative science classroom technology and the sponsors of Science is Cool virtual unconferences. These are free virtual events that help science educators around the world with free resources, inspiration, and a cool science community. Join the fun at thepocketlab.com SCIC. And you don't have to take my word for it. Here's Neil deGrasse Tyson. The Pocket Lab, 
These are people who have deep interest and access to the world's science teachers. And they conducted a seminar, a virtual seminar over Zoom, where 11,000 teachers showed up. 11,000. Well, you too could be one of the thousands of teachers from around the world who join us for the free Science is Cool virtual unconferences. Just go to thepocketlab.com slash SCIC to check out the schedule. And we'll see you there.